Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB, and I'm joined live at the LA Times Festival of Books with my co-hosts, LARB Managing Editor Medea Ocher and LARB Editor-at-Large Kate Wolf. Hi, Medea and Kate. Hi, Hi Eric. Eric. Oh, jinx. Jinx, Kate. <laughs> So (laughs) today we're bringing you a conversation that we taped with William E. Jones about his new novel, I'm Open to Anything, at our regularly air-conditioned studios at Emerson College. There's a breeze. I am really hot. Really? Yes. (laughs) I have baked into a souffle. It's feeling a little hot. Dea has also been in the sun chair for quite some time. I have given myself over to the sun chair. And I think my face is going to show it tomorrow. Just FYI. I put sunscreen on. Anyways, because um, I've learned. This conversation with William E. Jones was actually great in terms of talking about the things that are happening in his novel, which are about sexuality, but also about place and history and change. And there's lots of kind of a way of looking back at a particular type of L.A. and a queer L.A. Um, from the 1980s and 1990s that I found really generative and fun to read through. Yeah, I got to say, I was, as a, a prude... I was clutching my pearls when I saw the cover. <laughs> see, I found that book to be a great coffee table book because <laughs> I actually want everyone to see it. That's a coffee table book in your house. Exactly, in my house. And, in Deo's, in and I was clutching house, my pearls. That goes in her special reading room. <laughs> yeah. In Daya's house, um, she cut out a nun's habit and pasted it over the cover of the book. Because, should you say what's on the cover? There, there's a... Erect. A gold statue with a prominent erect penis. Yes. That's right. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a representation also of, or a reference to the gay iconography of St. Sebastian. Oh, is that right? Yeah, with the I believe, And I believe it's a William E. Jones sculpture. Yes, it's one of yes. William's pieces. And I think it is titled St. Sebastian. So when you saw that cover, you were... I clutched my pearls. But reading it, I thought it was, as you said, Eric, such an interesting history of a particular queer sort of coming of age mm-hmm. and an engagement with sexuality, pornography, yes. really explicit depictions of what sex is like and what sex is with a simultaneous engagement with critical theory, yep. philosophy, questions about the way that culture engages with sexuality. And it was a really, it was a really interesting Aesthetics. book to read, yeah. despite my initial, you know, panic. It's like, come for the fisting, stay for the film criticism. That's, that's, <laughs> that's my like, hot say. take on that's, that book. That's my tagline. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to it. Okay. Great. We're excited to have William E. Jones with us in the studio today. William is an artist, experimental filmmaker, and writer whose work uses a variety of techniques, such as reappropriation and recontextualization, to explore a range of themes and topics, including gay subcultures, counterfeiting, and materiality. His film and artwork have been shown in retrospectives at museums across the world, including the Tate, the Louvre, the Palais de Tokyo, and the Whitney Biennial and the Venice Biennale. He joins us today to discuss his latest work, I'm Open to Anything, a novel about a young man who makes his way from the Midwest to Southern California in the late 1980s and discovers himself among the city's sexual subcultures. Balancing kink scenes, existential musing, L.A. urban history, and film criticism, I'm Open to Anything is a unique queer coming-of-age tale. Welcome to the show, William. Thank you. So we were going to start by you reading from your text. Okay, so this is a short 
passage about working at a video store, an institution I hope some of your listeners remember. Nobody has any idea what that is. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned Blockbuster Video, which at one time was an enormous company and now is practically non-existent. There's just one open yeah. in the whole country. Yeah, one in Bend, Oregon. All right, so this is a section about working at a video store. I was broke, and loath as I was to find gainful employment, I had to get hold of money somehow. I decided the most painless path was to become a video store clerk. It would require dealing with the public, a task to which I was temperamentally unsuited, but at least it would provide me with free rentals. During the VHS era, a corporate chain dominated the market. At the end of the 1980s, a new blockbuster video opened every 17 hours, a statistic that terrified the proprietors of independent stores. The only way for them to make a profit was to carry titles as the chain stores wouldn't. In almost every case, that meant porn. The place where I found a job, Video Active, relied heavily on this strategy for its economic survival. It had a large selection of gay porn and not much else. Video Active's customers provided the employees with plenty of amusement and irritation. When a membership card was scanned, messages would sometimes appear on the computer which was positioned on the counter so that only the clerk could see the screen. Most were notices of late fees or expired credit cards. Some were character sketches of the more problematic customers. Examples included Mean Bastard, Drives a Jaguar and Tries to Avoid Paying, Smells Bad, Don't Get Too Close, and the one every employee dreaded most, Returns Greasy Tapes. The porn tapes at Videoactive all bore a label that read $5 cleaning fee. When a customer returned a tape covered with lube, the clerk had the unenviable task of informing the customer that he, it was never a she, had to pay an extra $5. The men who were embarrassed quietly paid. The others were not so cooperative. One especially difficult customer, the mean bastard, would often return greasy tapes and argue that it wasn't he but a previous customer who was to blame. From the smirk on his face, I could tell that he got a sadistic thrill from forcing a lowly video store clerk to deal with the residue of his masturbatory rituals. One Tuesday morning, I had a heated exchange with this man, and I informed him that what he said was impossible. He was the first person to rent the tape in question. In fact, he had been the first one to rent most of the gay porn tapes displayed in the store. Apparently, this struck a nerve, and he shut up and never bothered me again. This customer was humiliated to be reminded that he was also what I called a Monday man. Videoactive made new gay porn tapes available on Monday mornings, and a small group of men came into the store as soon as it opened to check them out. They rented large stacks of videos and returned them early the next morning, then promptly rented the videos that the other Monday men had grabbed before they did. This pattern of rentals and returns continued for a few days until every Monday man had seen all of the new gay porn tapes. I never saw any of them rent a title that was over a month old. I wasn't brazen enough to ask, but I suspected that this was because the Monday men had already seen every single gay porn tape on the shelves of Videoactive. These customers constituted a group only to outsiders who noticed the similarity of their behavior. Even though they had a common interest— they never met to talk about what they saw or coordinate their viewing habits to avoid conflicts over new tapes, at least not as far as I could tell. Every once in a while, a Monday man would ask impatiently who had rented a particular title, but I was not allowed to divulge that information. I thought this person's identity would have been obvious anyway. They were such a small group that I assumed they all knew each other, 
but actually these men couldn't bring themselves to acknowledge their fellows. I never overheard discussions of any substance between them. Each was alone in his obsession. Thank you so much. That's great. Can you talk a little bit, I guess, to rewind, so to speak, can you talk a little bit about the genesis of this project? Kind of what you're trying to get at. Because there's so many ways that I think we could move with this novel. It's a coming-of-age tale. It's also urban history. It's a primer on certain kinds of sexual practices, including fisting. What drove you to the project? I had published a book called True Homosexual Experiences. Up until now, I've only done nonfiction. And True Homosexual Experiences was a biography of Boyd MacDonald. Boyd MacDonald was an incredible iconoclast, and he was the editor of a sex journal called Straight to Hell. (laughs) And Straight to Hell was a great influence on a lot of people. It was practically the first queer zine. And Boyd himself had an amazing life. The publisher of the book is We Heard You Like Books in Los Angeles. They're Mm -hmm. a small press. And the publisher said to me one day, you know, the only book I've enjoyed publishing has been True Homosexual Experiences. (laughs) From now on, all I want to do is publish dirty gay books. <laughs> I said, I can write you one. And he said in response, I'm open to anything. I said, you ah, just gave okay. me the title. <laughs> so the, the challenge was to write a book that would go with the title, I'm open to anything. It was almost like a prank. Although a prank as a novel is potentially an elevated thing. I mentioned Denis Diderot's The Nun practically at the end of the book. And that's kind of an interesting reference because that was another novel that was, in a sense, a prank. It had its origin. Diderot invented a woman who was imprisoned in a nunnery and got somebody very interested in her fictitious life, not revealing that she was a fictitious (laughs) character, but this poor person thought she was a real woman. And he ended up having to kill off the nun. She committed suicide because he couldn't bring this person he was writing to to meet the fictitious woman. (laughs) So the prank as a novel is a sense how it began. I started writing it the day that our current president was inaugurated. (laughs) And I have to confess, I'm not the kind of guy to go out and go to protests all the time. I had to think of something to do in response. Sure. And my response was to write a porno novel. But that said, it's like, so I'm interested in what the publisher said is that I just want to write dirty gay books. Because there is a way in which, yeah, you could look at this book as being dirty because it has explicit, but what I would describe as not pornographic. Though I think one of the questions your novel asks is what is pornography really? Yeah. Because you're also exploring relationships between men, like relationships across class, across race. There's lots of other things that you're bringing forward. The novel also makes an aesthetic case for pornographic scenes as an aesthetic choice as opposed to just a commercial one. Yeah, I mean, this book has a polemical relationship to a lot of very respectable literature that has a real problem writing sex scenes. Um, If I can mention something specific, a lot of people were interested in the film Call Me By Your Name. Right. And that's based on a novel that is almost completely sexless. Yes, You know, the pivotal moment in the film, pivotal moment in the book as well, when the two main characters decide to have sex, in the book it's written as foreplay, and then there's an ellipsis. Right. And suddenly it's the next morning. Wind chiming, (laughs) yeah. And I have no interest in that kind of literature. Sorry, André Asimov. I (laughs) could not care less. I'm interested in something that's more in touch with the material realities of our bodies, for one thing. 
and also that's potentially violating certain prudish standards. To riff on the title of your book, what does that open up for you in terms of when we return to the materiality of the body or the materiality Mm -hmm. of sex? What do you think that allows us to glimpse that the ellipsis elides? Well, for me, I feel cheated. And Mm. half that book is concerned with deciding whether this guy is going to have sex with this other guy. And to me, it reads almost like teenage slash fiction about TV shows. (laughs) You could see that, yeah. This, you know, will I do it? Will I not? And that's absolutely nothing to do with the experience of gay men I know. I don't think it's generally the way men think. It's not just about the anticipation, you mean. It's about the actual being in the experience. Yeah, it's about having sex. And then afterwards, you figure out if you can get along with this person. You can have some (laughs) kind of friendship or relationship. And I think that that progression from sex act to something more substantial is that is much more true to the experience of urban gay men in America. Mm. And that is one of the important transitions in the novel that two characters will have sex. The narrator will have sex with someone. And then when they're done, they'll have a conversation and there'll be a whole narration of someone's life. Right. And the narrator at one point says, well, actually, having sex is an excuse for conversations. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Whereas it used to be, you'd have endless conversations and then you could maybe have sex. To lead up to sex, yeah. And, you know, in modern times, it's different. You have sex and then you figure out if you can have a conversation. And those conversations can be very precious because somebody who's just had sex, really their guard is down. Mm. There's been an intimate boundary crossed And almost anything can be said in that context. And that's, to me, extremely interesting. So it isn't just the physical act of sex. It's what that makes possible, which is a narration of people's lives. I wonder, were there books counter to the Asiman novel where you read it and you said, finally, I see something that I recognize or that I've been looking for? Was there a literary history that allowed for that? In America, there's very little. And I wanted something that was simultaneously pornographic and ambitious. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I think the French do much better than the Americans. Jean Jean Genet is a great example. And maybe I should also remind you, Diderot's first novel was a porno novel. It was called The Indiscreet Jewels. Mm. And it was about talking pudenda. It seems like something that's totally idiotic, but actually he managed to inject in it a kind of elevated discourse. And he was a really clever guy. And actually, he's a great inspiration for me, Diderot. Philosophically, he was a materialist. And I'm terribly interested in things like Jacques the Fatalist or The Nun. Indiscreet Jewels is a part of his juvenilia, and it's not as interesting as a novel. But as an idea, it's a great idea. So I don't see a lot going on in America that is that hopeful or that interesting. But there's a great tradition in France. You know, this book has a lot of really compelling discussions of pornography. But then I also think of the fact of pornography being, in relation to narrative, seeming very gratuitous. I think a more conventional idea of porn is that there's no story. That everything, every story is just a contrivance to get to sex. But you have such a different view and a more expansive view. And something I really liked in the book is this understory of And I know you've made artwork about this too, which is the kind of subtext or understory of of porn. And I thought in this book, it was particularly interesting, you know, watching porn in the 80s. And I just wondered if you could talk a little about that connection. There are a lot of different things I could say about that question. One I should mention is I've worked in the porn industry 
And I have made work from porn, artwork from porn, and it is something that I think needs to be discussed culturally more than it is. And I have wanted to write about porn for many years, and I've never figured out an adequate way to do it. One way of thinking about that is that it's such a massive topic that is constantly changing that it's impossible to draw a line around it. What's the boundary between your topic and what's not your topic? Do you only choose to write about gay stuff or do you write about straight stuff? Do you write about other forms of porn like fetish stuff? It's very difficult to get the subject under any kind of control. And I thought, well, maybe I can write something autobiographical, a kind of memoir. And that proved to be not terribly interesting. Autobiography is not a form that I'm that interested in doing. I do biographies and I do a fiction that's narrated in the first person, but strict autobiography is not what I want to do. So this was a way of, one of the things I can say is the novel to me as a form is a receptacle. And that receptacle is really expansive and elastic. A novel can contain almost anything. And that's one of the most admirable aspects of the novel form. So this book is a receptacle for various intellectual interests of mine, in addition to being a porno novel, in addition to being something with a plot that people can read as a novel. It's also a way to digress into topics of interest to me. Does the novel do, as a person who works in a variety of mediums, have you found that the novel does and is more elastic than, say, a visual medium? It does different things. And I think the way that I can best talk about the difference is in the attention that's given by spectators or by readers. If you make contemporary art, you're often confronted with the possibility that thousands of people will see your work, but only for a few seconds. And if you make a time-based medium, if you make a video or a film, this is heartbreaking. Now you can make a painting, you can make a photograph, and you can do something that people can apprehend very quickly. But even then, it's an insult to see a painting for five seconds and move on. And believe me, we've seen it in every museum, a great masterpiece on the wall that might take a lifetime to understand. People spend a second with it and maybe take a picture. And to me, that's really cruel to the artist. The great thing about a novel is you either read it or you don't. (laughs) Yeah. And if you commit to reading my novel, which is 169 pages, it's not that long, you really give it a kind of attention that most people do not give contemporary art. And that, I think, is the best aspect of the novel for an artist. That's so interesting. How do you go to museums? Do you choose a work to really focus on? It depends on the museum. If I've been there before... I go to the works that I really want to look at. Mm -hmm. I was very lucky. I grew up close to the Cleveland Museum of Art, which is a really fine museum that has free admission. And it has a great collection that I can really pour over. But I don't look at everything. I just look at specific works that interest me. If I'm a tourist, well, I am afraid I have to behave like a tourist. (laughs) And I sometimes take pictures for future reference. But it's a difficult predicament we're in in daily life here. Everything's too fast. So speaking of making artwork and also writing, I'm wondering how you divide up your time. Just more of a logistical, practical question. But when you were writing this book, for instance, did you stop doing other work? I did. I tend to go through periods 
And it has to do with my relationship to language. After I finished this book, I was really tired of writing. And I didn't write for several months, and I made visual art. But now, things are changing a bit. I got a little tired of doing visual art. I mean, visual art is really fun to make on some level because you can listen to music while you make it. You can stand around, and you can take a walk, and everything's... I mean, it's so fun to make visual art by comparison. Writing is pure misery. (laughs) It really is. And I can listen to very little music while I do it. Also, I find my brain works best when I wake up early in the morning. So when I wrote this book, it was a lot of mornings waking up at 6 o'clock in the morning and going into the office and writing on a pad, which is what I do, and working and working and working intensely and then having breakfast at maybe 10. And then the afternoon I spend typing what I wrote. And that's like a whole day. Yeah. What I've actually also found is I can't turn on a computer because I'm tempted to look at email. And answering email, it often, if you do it first thing in the morning, the email gets the best part of your brain power. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I don't want that to happen. I want the best part of my brain to be poured into the writing I'm doing. So I save the emails for who knows when. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with William Jones, author of I'm Open to Anything. We return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Tommy Pico in the studio today. Hello. Hi. Tommy is the author of many books of poems, and his most recent book is Junk. Tommy, you have a book for us. So I've been telling people, I mean, this is, it's been on everybody's bestseller list or whatever, but I will shout it out until I am hoarse. It's called There There by Tommy Orange. That's my boy. I like him a lot. We're cool. Um, We have a text chain wherein we always take screen grabs of people on social media who are like, I really want to read There There by Tommy Pico, (laughs) or I want to read Junk by Tommy Orange. And so that's just been Uh, a a wellspring (laughs) of joy for us. But it's such a, the novel itself is such an ambitious novel, especially for a first novel. It like interweaves all of these different narratives and perspectives and characters. And I don't even know how to write in one voice, much <laughs> less like 15 different people. I'm like, there is something wrong with your brain. <laughs> and for an ambitious first novel to actually deliver on the promise of its premise. Because so many times I feel like I'm reading things and like halfway through the whole thing falls apart. And this one is just so meticulously done. There is not one detail that doesn't mean something. I mean, we're talking about Chekhov's 3D printed gun here. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And the beauty and the humor and the just the believability. And it's like, I, I even though I don't know these people, I know these people. You know what I mean? They became fully realized characters to me. And then it was like, how dare you make me care about people who don't even exist? <laughs> Tell us the name of the book again. It's called There, There by Tommy Orange. Thank you so much, Tommy Pico. We've been speaking with Tommy Pico, the author most recently of Junk. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with William Jones, author of I'm Open to Anything. Speaking of this kind of movement into different media, I mean, there's a thing that is true in kind of gay history in the U.S., also more broadly, 
but which gets mentioned in the book too, this kind of sense that gayness is like a literary identity first, that kind of the dissemination of novels is a way that many people come to understand, oh, I finally recognize myself by seeing myself there on the page. And then there's a kind of movement away from that and into visual media, and that has a different way of kind of hailing community. At the same time, as you trace like that kind of trajectory for your character, you're also seeing kind of the ebbing away of certain types of community as like gay culture's visibility changes. And Mm -hmm. in the moment that you cited before, that character is actually talking about that kind of as a loss in the Mm -hmm. way that I read it, right? That it's Mm -hmm. like, we used to have this wonderful art of conversation when everything was kind of clandestine. And now everything is not clandestine. It's naked in another way of saying it. And now everything is after the fact. So like, can you talk about that progression and like how you see the novel's encounter with that type of history? One thing I can do is question who we is. Mm. Because you're talking about what's happening in the United States in urban areas. Sure. Uh, among people who have sufficient income to have technology, for instance. One of the characters the narrator encounters is from Peru. Mm-hmm. And he had a gay uncle who was in Lima and living as a gay man. And who lived a very different life than someone in Los Angeles in the late 80s or early 90s would live. And part of the fascination of the conversation with the Peruvian character is that it's a glimpse into a different world, a different way of arranging gay life. Mm -hmm. And I know that one of the places that this character would go in his childhood was ice cream parlors where people would sit around and talk. And that would be the prelude to sex. Right. And that's completely unlike the scene in the U.S., for one thing. But, you know, one thing I can suggest is that different societies move along technological and cultural timelines in different ways. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think the book deals with pretty explicitly. And I, I have to say I'm not that interested in gay culture, in quotes, Mm. as a topic. Mm -hmm. There's something else that should be written about, whether it's porn, whether it's the way people have sex, whether it's literature, whether it's the way people do things in other societies. That, to me, is of much more interest. You know, that the kind of standard American gay novel, which may indeed be sexually explicit, for me, the problem is it's not intellectually ambitious enough. Mm that that's the thing that's missing. And what I was always worried about is that people would come to the book thinking it was just a porno novel and they would be disappointed that there was so much writing about other stuff in it. (laughs) Right. And thus far, I haven't seen that happen. I guess I should knock wood. But I think anyone who comes to a book full stop is expecting something else. They really aren't expecting pornography. They're expecting other things. And that's another great thing about a novel if in this, at this late date, you do have it within yourself to read a novel, chances are you're, you're open to other things. <laughs> There's a great scene in the book that I assume is autobiographical where the character, after coming... I also, I hope we can talk a little bit about the, the character's embrace of Los Angeles. But after coming to LA and seeing an ad um, in a Hustler magazine for Fred Halstead, who's a famous filmmaker or porn filmmaker that you've also written about, um, then meets up with him in in person, rents him basically for an hour, and they end up having an interview. And there are so many brilliant ideas that 
Fred talks about in terms of his relationship to porn and and sex in art. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about that scene and, uh, yes. and <laughs> some of the ideas that are, are brought up in it? Well, Fred is a, he was a great figure and he was a very important figure for the culture of Los Angeles. He made a film called L.A. Plays Itself, which later inspired another film called Los Angeles Plays Itself by Tom Anderson. Yeah. Or at least he took the title from it. <clears throat> and um, anyway, Fred, I, he was a subject of one of my other books, Halstead Plays Himself, which was published by Semiotext uh, in 2011. And I'd done a lot of research about him. I'd interviewed many people who knew him. And I find him kind of endlessly fascinating as a character. But I couldn't put everything I wanted to put into the book into it. So I had to cut out an interview with him that I just loved. And it was actually, this is such a story. It was part of a PhD dissertation by a Jesuit priest who wrote a dissertation on gay pornography. Mm. And that was, that was in 1974, a very different time. Oh. I contacted this guy, interviewed him about Fred, and he gave me the permission to use that interview however I wished. Unfortunately, there was not enough room in Halstead Place himself. And so I figured, how can I reuse this material? (laughs) I made a fake conversation between the narrator and Fred Halstead. And you and yourself, yourself, you never met Fred Halstead. I never met him personally. But I'm glad it was convincing enough that you thought (laughs) that. I assumed that it was true, yeah. I will say, though, that it was a very uh, interesting project of editing. You know, I had, and those are really Fred's words. He said every word that's in the interview, except for little changes to make it more flowing or grammatical. But he, he really said those words. And I was very happy to put them in another context. And I'm also happy it was convincing enough mm-hmm. that you thought it was something that happened to me. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit. You said earlier that you autobiography doesn't interest you or that you, you tried to write it, but it was a little boring. Would you mind, though, talking a little bit about yourself and your... <laughs> um, so the character, the main character grows up in this Midwestern town immediately from the first page. We know his goal is to get the fuck out. <laughs> mm-hmm. What what was your situation when you were younger? Well, the real story of William E. Jones. Yes. I grew up in Massillon, Ohio, and I went to Yale as an undergraduate. I didn't like the East Coast, so I thought, mm-hmm. I'll try California. And then as a graduate student, I went to CalArts. And after that, I couldn't afford to move anywhere but Los Angeles which was really quite cheap to live in at that time. And it was also close by. So I moved to Los Angeles and I'd been there for 32 years. You know, that's very roughly speaking what I've done in my life. The narrator has a life a bit like that, but he hasn't gone to graduate school yet. He goes to somewhere as an undergraduate. It's not named. Also, the the town he's from is not named. Mm -hmm. Neither is the state. So you can imagine he maybe he's in Illinois and maybe he's somewhere outside Pittsburgh. Who knows where he is? And I liked it being somewhat more general. I also didn't want, I really had no interest in writing about some Ivy League experience. That to me is just the ultimate in banality mm-hmm. uh, for the, the class of people who tend to read fiction. I mean, who cares? So the first chapter is about growing up in the Midwest in an industrial wasteland and having to get out. The second chapter is about college 
And then with the third and fourth chapters, things become more interesting. The father dies. There's an inheritance. The kid goes to California. The inheritance is really paltry because there's nothing much to inherit. Uh, Another thing that's kind of, I'm thinking about a lot these days, and I was when I was writing the novel, the price of a house where I grew up is about one-tenth or even one-twentieth of the price of a house in Los Angeles. And I see that as actually one of the most important aspects of American society, that there's this regional prosperity that's taking place. There's this enormous wealth, mostly concentrated on the coasts, that people in the interior of the country don't get to participate in. And my interest is in reversing that somehow. So this book, if this book is a success in the Midwest, I'll be very happy. And my tour that I'm going on, actually half the tour is taking place in the Midwest. It's not just a coastal affair. (laughs) And um, so for me, that's a very important political thing as well. Because I believe we have the president we have partly because of the resentments of people who live in a place where there are few opportunities, there's not a lot of wealth, where their house might be worth one-twentieth of what a house in Los Angeles is worth. Mm-hmm. I mean, now I don't think I could have made the, the move I made. Mm-hmm. I didn't come from great wealth. And I think these days to move to Los Angeles, you almost have to. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely changed. Something that I had wondered when uh, when you were talking earlier is, and you can say if this is too personal or not, but... <laughs> writing, oh, I don't know. I wrote a book in the first person about... Well, that, you know, okay, sex. so this is what I asked. This is what I wanted to ask. Did writing so much about sex, putting your... And you, you know, you said you'd wake up in the morning, you'd go dedicate yourself to the novel. That's where your brain went. Did writing so much about sex and, and having it be a daily part of your work change your relationship to sex. I can say this isn't the sort of book you could write in your 20s. Interesting. I think if, I mean, I think even more than writing, working in the porn industry really did something to my you know, my notion of what sex is and what it can be. You know, I think when you're in your 20s, constant conquests and constant fun is really important. I'm in my 50s now. Mm-hmm. And Everything slowed down, and that's fine because I get a chance to think about it. Mm-hmm. And so the writing is a very different project than one's social life. I live a very retiring existence. I, I, I'm not retired, but, you know, I'm, I'm not that social. And I spend a lot of time reading and thinking and making art and writing. And uh, often by the time the evening rolls around, I'm a bit tired of that and you know, I just have a nice dinner and go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not very glamorous. But, but you know, I looked, I, I remember one time I looked at my appointment book because it was before phones did that for you. I looked at my appointment book at all the concerts and readings and art shows I went to in the 90s. And it was this unbelievable amount of stuff that I, you know, I watched, I consumed, I participated in. And I think that's really the energy of a younger person. Mm-hmm. You have a different kind of energy when you get a little older. So that's one thing. Another thing I can say that's specifically about the book, the first draft was wild. I actually cut 100 pages out of the first draft to make the book that you read. And wild in what sense? 
flashbacks, flash forwards, all kinds of sexual acts, all kinds of characters who were introduced in one chapter and disappeared. And then the second draft was really about pairing that back and making it more disciplined as a narrative. Hmm. And so at the beginning, it was about getting something out of my system, about doing something outrageous. And then the subsequent drafts became about the craft of making a narrative, uh, making something that was simple and accessible. Uh, the, the book actually only has one flashback in it. It's almost a complete linear narrative. One thing happens, then then another. And a straight line is a great way to go in a narrative, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And it's more maybe appropriate to my writing style, which is not particularly flowery or elaborate. And so, so that was the second draft. I got things down to a linear narrative. It had no end. So the third draft, I wrote an ending for it. I, I, I thought I had an ending, and I sent it out to a couple of people, and they said, there's no ending to this book. So I had to write an ending for the third draft. And then nearer the end, like maybe the fourth draft, what I ended up doing was adjusting the timeline. I talk about a lot of cultural artifacts, uh, a lot of institutions, a lot of places that you mentioned. I had to make sure that they existed at the time that the novel is set. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I ended up settling on 1988 to 1992 for the timeline of the book. And every chapter, I would give it a date, and I would make sure that what I was writing about was not an anachronism. And so I, that was really one of the last passes in the editing is, is paring away all of the anachronisms of the book or adjusting the book so that it really had a kind of historical veracity. And the, the rule of thumb that I use, the way I talk about it is the settings of the book the businesses, the bars, the clubs, they're all historically accurate to the best of my ability to write them. The action, the plot, mm-hmm. that's all fiction. So that's kind of the way I've been thinking about things, you know, that the setting is as close as possible to the city I live in at that time. And what happens in the novel is made up. I also, one of the things that I really enjoyed in reading the book is kind of getting to tour those institutions and spaces, kind of sex clubs, but also video stores that were from an older Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that as I'm as I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, that place doesn't exist anymore. You know, like Circus of Books is closed, like all of those kind of things. But the character is also experiencing that kind of erasure. There's like a sex yes. club that he goes to, or maybe it's just a gay bar. I it's can't a remember. gay bar. It's a gay bar. Yeah. He goes to it, and then it's like maybe a week or so later, he comes back and it's closed. Yes, And so right. that, that kind of erasure of history. So one thing that I would love to hear from you is kind of, how you see that movement. Like there's a Silver Lake as it appears in the mid-1980s and early 1990s in your book. And then there's a very different kind of Silver Lake as it appears today. Yeah, the people who are a generation older than I really got to experience something. Mm -hmm. But also their sense of loss is much greater. Right. Partly because of the ravages of AIDS, but partly because of the culture changing. Sure. And I was just watching a movie yesterday and and, uh, Fran Leibowitz said... You know, the word promiscuity doesn't even cover it, what people were doing in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And I love that. But I didn't get to participate in that. Yeah. I'm, I'm too young. Right. So 
perpetually in my adult life, there's been this sense that I missed something. You know, everything that happened that was fun was when I was a child and couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't legal for me to do it. I wasn't in the right place to do it. And so there's been a kind of sense, really practically from the beginning, of things falling away, of things declining. And it's also the sensibility you have if you grow up in a place that is in decline economically. Mm -hmm. You know, I come from the industrial Midwest. And where I come from is kind of a ghost town now. And so I was practically born into a feeling of loss. You know, that everything is going to pass away. Yeah. Prosperity is going to go away. There are going to be no more jobs. There's going to be no more fun. And how do you cope with that as an adult person? I mean, you can just be defeatist. You can be immature about it. How do you fashion something in art that compensates for this loss or that memorializes things that are no longer with us and maybe inspires people to found new institutions or to make new things happen. One of my great hopes with my artwork and with my books is that young people will read them and be inspired to make their own fun. Okay, thank you so much, William, for joining us. We've been speaking with William E. Jones, author of I'm Open to Anything. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.